When Colleen Orsborne missed her bus on the morning of March 15, 1984, her mother Frances was understandably irritated at the 15-year-old. Frances had just been getting over an illness and had to be on time for work that day. She left money on the table for Colleen and told her she would have to take the public bus. But when Frances returned home later that day, the money for the bus was still on the table. Frances knew that Colleen had not gone to school. But she wasn't concerned until the hours continued to pass with no word from Colleen. At first, the rebellious teen was thought to be a runaway. But the true story of what happened to Colleen Orsborn would turn into a mystery that wouldn't be solved until 27 years later. Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. Fifteen-year-old Colleen Orsborne and her mother Frances had just moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, after Frances and Colleen's father had gotten divorced. The eighth grader had previously attended St. Paul's Catholic School, but was discharged for behavioral problems and was currently attending Camp Bell Junior High School. Colleen was a smart student, but according to those who knew her, she didn't like school and she would often skip classes. It was because of this fact that on the morning of March 15th, 1984, that Frances was annoyed with her daughter. Colleen had overslept and missed the school bus, and Frances, who had just gotten over an illness, needed to be at work on time. She left money on the kitchen table for her daughter, telling her she would need to take the public bus to get to school. When Frances would return home, however, she noticed that the money still sat on the table untouched. It was obvious that Colleen had indeed again skipped school, and Frances decided to look into her daughter's bedroom for hints of where she had gone. The only items missing from Colleen's bedroom were her pink bikini and a pair of flip-flops, leading Frances to believe that her daughter had headed down to the beach. It was spring break in March 1984, and the beach was packed with people, all trying to soak up the sun. Daytona Beach was also the place to go for outdoor concerts, and they were taking place all over the beach. Colleen, a music lover, had planned to see as many acts as she could that summer. Frances was pretty sure that Colleen had made her way down to the beach and she would return after the festivities for the day had ended. But, as time passed and Colleen never returned home, Frances would realize that something was terribly wrong. When Frances would call to report her daughter missing to authorities, she had mentioned that Colleen had been known to skip school and that the two had gotten into a fight that morning. So authorities at the time thought that maybe Colleen, a 15-year-old with a history of being rebellious, had run away. But even though Colleen had a history of skipping school, she had never run away from home. And those who knew her and loved her knew that she would never leave for that long without talking to at least one of them. In April of 1984, a month after Colleen Orsborne's disappearance, a fisherman near a lake in Orange County, Florida, was looking for a spot to fish, when instead he found a knee sticking out of the dirt. 
the decomposed body of a young woman was buried in a shallow grave. She still had pink fingernail polish on her fingers and toes. A physical description closely matched that of Colleen. The woman had been around 15 or 16, with the same approximate build and height as Colleen. However, according to Francis, Colleen had suffered a broken arm a few years prior, and the medical examiner ruled out the chance that it was Colleen, because there was no evidence that the woman discovered had ever healed from a broken arm. However, either way, they decided to keep both the mandible, the jawbone, and skull of their Jane Doe, in hopes that someday DNA technology would get better. Thirty-nine-year-old Christopher Wilder was born in Australia, but moved to the U.S. in 1969. He had had a successful real estate business, and in return, it made him a millionaire. He'd also had a passion for photography. In 1982, Wilder would be charged with sexual offenses of two 15-year-old girls while he was visiting his parents in Australia. His parents would bail him out of jail, allowing him to flee back to the States. And due to legal complications, his trial for the offenses would not be scheduled until 1984. Meanwhile, back in the States, Wilder would make his way to Florida, where he would race in the Miami Grand Prix. It was here that a young woman named Rosario Gonzalez a spokesmodel for the Grand Prix would last be seen. Less than a month later, Wilder's ex-girlfriend Elizabeth Kenyon would also go missing. Neither woman was ever found. Now I want to take a brief second right now to tell you there is a lot of information about Christopher Wilder out there on the internet. And there is a link that I will post if you are interested in checking out the details of his crimes and the victims. But... I just want you to know that right now, I'm not going to go into those details. In fact, I'm only going to gloss over the gory facts. In short, Christopher Wilder would go on to assault, kidnap, and murder several women in Florida, Georgia, Texas, Kansas, Utah, California, and New York. It was, however, after a failed assault in 1984 that Wilder would stop in New Hampshire and ask for directions and how to get to Canada. He was attempting to flee the country, but before he could get any further, he was spotted by two New Hampshire state troopers named Leo Jelson and Wayne Fortier, who recognized him off the FBI's most wanted list. Once he knew he was spotted, Wilder would attempt to flee to his car and grab his gun, but he would be grabbed from behind by one of the troopers. A scuffle would ensue and shots would be fired. One of the shots would hit Wilder exiting through his back and into Jelson. The next shot would go right through Wilder's chest, killing him. Jelson would be seriously injured, but would eventually return to duty. Christopher Wilder's known murder victims are eight, between February and April of 1984. However, it is suspected that he has killed at least 12 other women. After Wilder's death in 1984, his personal estate was worth $7 million. In June of 1986... A court-appointed attributor ruled that after tax, the balance was to be divided among the families of its victims. On the day of Colleen Orsborne's disappearance, Christopher Wilder had been staying at the Howard Johnson Motel near Interstate 95 in Daytona Beach, Florida. And there was something else, too. One of Colleen's classmates would later come forward and say that on that same day, a man had approached her and offered her $100 to pose for some pictures. She declined, 
admitting that the man creeped her out. Not only was this a tactic that Wilder had used when he tried to lure young women, offering false modeling sessions, but his description also matched Wilder. Authorities were beginning to believe they might have an idea of what happened to Colleen Orsborne. Despite speculation against Wilder, there was no proof that he nor Colleen had ever met. And by this time, Wilder was already dead, so they were unable to gather any new information that would connect the two. And this story would yet again be thrown for another loop, when in 2001, Colleen's brother would receive an anonymous letter postmarked from Manchester, New Hampshire. The letter, littered with misspellings, would give directions to an area along the Tomeka River, off Route 415 in Daytona Beach, where the writer claimed they could find Colleen's remains, along with her clothing. The author of the mysterious letter would admit to Colleen's murder, saying they were dying of cirrhosis of the liver, and they had wished for forgiveness. Despite the promise of finding Colleen, authorities said that the letter was too vague to be used. Colleen's family would attempt to reach out to the letter writer, but they would never hear from them again. Although hopeful, the family soon realized that the letter was more than likely just a cruel hoax. In 2007, Dr. Jan Gavagula, we'll just call her Dr. G for short for the rest of the episode here, is a medical examiner. She will take DNA from all of the agency's unidentified bodies and send them to a national database within the FBI. She was hoping that those who had not yet been found and were currently listed as John or Jane Doe's could have matches to those who were listed as missing. It would take a few years, but in 2010, Dr. G would receive a call from the FBI. The mandible that she had sent from the Jane Doe that had been found next to a lake in Orange County had a hit. The hit came from a woman in Daytona Beach, Colleen Orsborne's sister, who had submitted her DNA in hopes that someday there would be a match. Dr. G knew she needed one more piece of evidence to make sure that Jane Doe and Colleen Orsborne were the same, so she would compare a composite sketch that was made of the Jane Doe and the photo of Colleen off of her missing poster. They were identical. On July 20th, 2011, 27 years after Colleen Orsborne went missing, she was finally found, and she had been there the entire time. Dr. G would come to conclude that the reason the idea of Colleen had taken 27 years was not only because no one had double-checked the body for a repaired broken bone, but they had also tried to link the bodies to each other using hair samples between both women. In 1984, authorities have taken hair samples off of Colleen's curling iron to compare to the Jane Doe, and they had determined that there was no match. What they hadn't considered, and what was very likely, was that Colleen wasn't the only person who had used the curling iron. And therefore, it would appear as if there hadn't been a match because there were various samples. Although now Colleen Orsborne's family had closure, unfortunately, both her mother and father died before they found out what happened to their daughter. Although there has never been any definitive proof, authorities believe that after Colleen's classmate turned down Christopher Wilder, he turned down Colleen Street, where he would then pick her up. 
Colleen had probably never even made it to the beach that March day. And she was instead, more than likely, one of Christopher Wilder's first victims before he would begin his killing spree in six other states. What are your thoughts on this case? If you haven't yet, join our Facebook group. It's facebook.com backslash this story is nuts. I would also like to hear from you. If you have a personal story that you would like to share for the podcast or a story suggestion, it's this story is nuts at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. We've made it to 20 episodes. It's kind of exciting. Come back next week for an all new episode every single Wednesday that airs at midnight. And until then, stay naughty, my friends. This Story is Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with theme music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.